The decade was the 1970s. Gerald Ford famously went before Congress to give a State of the Union, and do you remember what he said, anybody? He said, the State of the Union is not good. If there's ever been kind of a transition decade, it was the 1970s. The 60s are years that we understand. There were, there were years of protest and reform. You had young Americans demonstrating against the Vietnam War. You had African Americans demonstrating for civil rights. Women were demonstrating for equal treatment. For many, the society's heroes of the 60s were people who were trying to help others. Now, you fast forward to the 1980s, right, which we'll look at next week. In the 80s, society's heroes were really whoever helped themselves. Success in the 80s was going to be measured by how much money you made, how much stuff you had. What happened in the 70s? How did we get from here to there? Well, one reason, you know, scholars believe is that, that the U.S. involvement in Vietnam came to an end and we didn't win. And another was the civil rights movement and the women's movements. They had begun to reach many of their goals. The third reason was the economy. During the 70s, if you were around, you remember this, the U.S. was involved in a significant recession. Interest rates and inflation. Interest rates were 20-some percent. Inflation was sky high. There was a shortage of imported oil. I remember waiting with my mom in gas lines. You could go on different days to get gas based on what your license plate was, I think, as I recall. Um, and so you think through what was going on in a nation. Gas lines, unemployment, impeachment, inflation. I mean, they all kind of combined and created this national malaise of doubt and despair and depression and recession. And it was, in, in a very real sense, in America, there was a feeling in the 70s that, that the idealism was gone. Our best days were behind us. We were no longer going to be who we were. The decade was the 40s, 740 BC to be exact. And Isaiah was prophesying to the people of Israel at a very similar time in their nation's history. God's people whom he had led through the wilderness to the promised land, they were beginning to feel, taste, and experience a similar national decline from Israel, from a zenith of political, social, and military power, was beginning to become a nation declining, beginning to doubt it, itself, and not just itself, but to doubt the God who had, had drawn her and established her. So much so that Israel, and this is what got, got God upset, and this is what raised up the prophet Isaiah to speak judgment to, to his people. Israel started to doubt that God would protect them. Instead, began to towards turn for protection towards Egypt at first, and then to Babylon for protection. And Isaiah, he comes on the scene, and he starts to warn his people. He says to them, now listen up. He says to them, now you're making a huge mistake. First of all, you're turning from God to pagan rulers for protection. But not only that, he prophesies over them and says, these very people that you're turning to for protection are going to be the very same people who are going to overtake you, conquer you, and carry you away. Amidst this prophetic call to God's people, Isaiah begins to, to speak to them about a another king, a coming king, a promised savior, and thus one of our great famous Christmas prophecies and verses. For unto us, Isaiah says to his people, as he looked ahead to Israel's future, unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He's going to reign on David, that was Israel's great king. He's going to reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Now, we've learned as a church over the last uh, weeks how much names mean, especially in the Old Testament. We, we spoke for, for a month and a half about the name Yahweh, God's personal name, what it meant, what, it, what, what its significance was. And so here comes Isaiah, and he's giving, he's giving his people names for this coming king, this, what we've come to know now as Babe of Bethlehem. And he says, he's, he only gives four of them. He says, one of the things they'll be called is Wonderful Counselor. We talked about that, that next week. He says, the next thing this, this coming Savior will be called is Mighty God. Mighty God. Now, now, the 70s was a great decade for disco. The 70s was a fantastic decade if you were John Travolta. I mean, right? He was a sweat hog on Mr. Cotter. And then he does Saturday Night Fever, and he follows it up with Grease. I mean, it doesn't get any better, Right? But it was a terrible decade for confidence and courage. And what you can see in our history, what you can see in Israel's history, is that when a nation gets scared, when its people get scared, and here's the truth for you and I, when you and I get scared, we tend to look to make allegiances and arrangements and agreements with people and things that we think can protect us, but which and whom often wind up overtaking us dragging us away. Now, it's easy to diagnose in our kids. Maybe you remember it from your childhood. I remember entering the hallowed halls of Mount Olive High School. Uh, this was long, it's 1981. This was long before the bullying education programs of our day. Bullying was still very cool in 1981. I marched in there, all five foot eight, eight inches of me, about 145 pounds. It was, I, I, I just fresh from getting my hair permed over the summer. That's a true story that will be told in another sermon another day. And I was scared. I'd heard about freshmen going, you know, sometimes walking into the bathroom and it was senior guys in there. And the next thing you know, they were getting the royal flush, if you know what that is. And so my goal was to, to lay low. And uh, I remember walking through the halls, you know, first day of school, they give you all the books, you know, and I remember walking through the halls and I had all these books. The books probably weighed as much as I did. And uh, I had my curly hair and my books and I was walking through the hall and I remember seeing these two big kids come at me and uh, the one kid pushed the other kid and purposely pushed him into me. I splattered on the wall and my books all hit the ground. In fact, true story, after first service, a guy, a guy in our church came up to me. He goes, you know, I knew you looked familiar. He said, I went to Night Man of High School in 1984. I said, you were probably the kid to beat me up. Now I'm bigger than he is, too, by the way. So, but Anyway, see, it's still in there. The pain is still in there. What I would have done anything was to have an agreement, an arrangement, an allegiance with someone on the other side. I don't care what kind of person they were. All I wanted was somebody that was bigger and stronger and tougher, somebody who I thought could protect me. Parents, if you want to know why your kids wind up in the wrong friend group, the answer is thousands of years old. It's the same reason the nation of Israel finds itself in the wrong friend group. And if we're honest about ourselves, it's often why we find ourselves in the wrong friend group. 
because we always wind up looking for acceptance first and then protection second. We all want acceptance and understanding, and we all want protection and strength. And to a nation, Isaiah writes to a nation that in 740 years B.C., I don't know if you knew B.C. means before Christmas. Not really, but it serves our purpose. In 740 B.C., Isaiah writes to a nation cutting deals with pagan rulers. He he writes to a, a nation in 1970 that's in despair over what it perceives as its loss of standing in the world, scared over its future. And he prophesies to you and I today who are in general still a people looking for somebody who might have our backs, who might stand up for us, protect us, comfort us, keep us, and help us overcome the trials uh, of this life. Isaiah promises you this. He says, you will find the one to come, not merely a wonderful counselor who understands you and still accepts you. You will find that he is mighty. Mighty God. I can't help wonder in my own life, and maybe in yours, if I've lost a bit of the wonder and awe regarding Christmas because I've lost a little bit of the wonder and awe regarding God. It's like the story has just gotten a bit too familiar. We know the story. I mean, it comes around with great regularity, right? But we don't feel it. We don't live it. Dallas Willard said this. He had a great line. He said, familiarity catches, breathes unfamiliarity. Familiarity breeds unfamiliarity, meaning when you get so familiar with something, it becomes like wallpaper. You don't even notice it anymore. It ceases to penetrate your heart and your mind. Instead, it's just this well-worn path, this track, this groove that you've been over and over and over again. It loses its power. I don't want Christmas to be like that to us. Nothing, nothing will tear down the wallpaper of the Christmas story like a fresh revelation of the glory and the power and the greatness and the might of God and what he did on Christmas morning. Nothing will change it like a glimpse of his might. We need regular reminders of this. See, Isaiah, in his generation, he needed to understand how mighty God was to speak to a people who were busy turning away. And so God gave him a little glimpse. Just a little glimpse. In the midst of his depression and his despair over his nation crumbling and his people's idolatry, God welcomes him into the temple with a vision that would force him after this experience, just three chapters later, to tell Israel, if I'm going to tell you four things, four names of this Messiah to come, one of them is going to be that he is a mighty God. Here's what Isaiah saw. He says in chapter 6 of his writing, in the year that King Uzziah died, why is this mentioned? Let me explain to you. King Uzziah was king for 52 years. 52 years. And as long as Uzziah had been on the throne, peace had prevailed in the Cold War between Israel and the surrounding nations. As long as Uzziah had been there, there had been a time of great prosperity. Society was flourishing. Economics were flourishing. People were happy. And now he died. And things began to look a little different. Enemies began pressing in on all sides. People started to become afraid. And into this time of fear, God shows Isaiah this. He says, I saw the Lord. In the year Uzziah died... I saw the Lord, and he was high and exalted, and he was seated on a throne. 
and the train of his robe filled the temple. In the year of Uzziah's death, when I was afraid things were changing, here is what I learned, Isaiah says to his people. I learned that it did not matter what happens with kings and governments. It didn't change anything. Uzziah was not in charge. It was God, and God was and is still on his throne. Nothing has changed. Not Uzziah, not Obama, not Trump, not Kim Jong-un. God in Lebanon this morning, God is still on his throne. God is still in charge. God is still in power. Don't become afraid. Don't run off and make pacts or agreements. You don't need their love. You don't have to have their money. You don't need their protection. God is still on the throne. Nothing's changed, right? Now, Isaiah, Isaiah keeps looking. And he says, as I stared at the throne, above him were seraphim. Seraphim are, for lack of a better description, angelic-like creatures. And each of these angels, for lack of a, using a more common word, each of these angels had six wings. With two wings, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. With two, they covered their face out of reverence. Because even created beings like angels cannot fully look upon the glory of God. This is how glorious he is that even angels need to cover their eyes, to, to, to shed their eyes, because they cannot look fully on the glory of God without being consumed. With two wings, they covered their feet in humility because that place was the holiest of holy grounds where God is. And with two, they hovered, always in motion, always prepared, always ready to be dispatched in an instant by God. And Isaiah starts to see that while things look scary in Israel, heaven is unchanged, God is on his throne, the angels are there to serve him, and nothing has happened to God's character either. Isaiah listens and he begins to see or hear. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Why holy three times? Holy is the Father. Holy is the Son. Holy is the Spirit. It's a holiness that can't be measured. It's implied in the incessant repeating. He is all holy, consummately holy, meaning he's different. He's separate. He's not like us. He's utterly different. He's infinitely unlike we are. He is still sovereign. He has the full angelic army of hosts at his side. He is without error and without flaw. The whole earth is full of his glory. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. He is the God he's always been, despite what's going on in your current circumstances. He is immutable, unchanging, all-glorious. Our circumstances don't change the reality up there. Understand, new president, unchanged kingdom. New boss, unchanged kingdom. National crisis, natural disaster, man-made catastrophe. Poor test grade, bad choice. Our personal circumstances do not change this truth. God is still on his throne, he is still in charge, and he is still all-powerful. Doesn't change. Isaiah needed to see that. And when he saw it, it changed him. And if you could get a glimpse of it, man, I, if you could just get a glimpse of the mightiness of God, I'm telling you it would change everything in your life. It would reorder everything. Isaiah says, at the sound of their voices, 
The doorposts and the thresholds shook. The temple was filled with smoke. And he said to himself, oh, this is cool. No. He said to himself, whoa. Woe to me. I cried. I'm ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, but my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. There's this consistent theme in the Bible that when anybody comes into contact with God, whenever they get close, they become undone. Isaiah, you have to picture, I tried to get a picture of this, but there are no good pictures out there. They're all cheesy and they all underplay how great this might have been. But Isaiah is so overwhelmed by the greatness and the might and the glory and the power and the utter goodness of God in the presence of his power and his holiness, his natural reaction on seeing how far short he is, how unholy, unworthy he is, is to say, I'm done, I'm ruined. But watch what happens. Scripture says that what Isaiah saw was that one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs. I mean, the seraphim needed tongs for it, from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth. And he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. In response to this agonizingly painful reality of genuine repentance, here, once again, is a God who moves, a God who does not turn his back on the one who, of unclean lips, but who moves towards him, who condescends and touches and cleanses and forgives. The coal touching his lips is this picture of atonement, the burning away of iniquity, the purifying and cleansing of Jesus. And then he, he hears again. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Whom will go, go for us? And I said, here I am. Send me. This vision launches Isaiah's entire prophetic ministry in the state of Israel. This vision launches a thousand Christmas carols. Isaiah enters the temple, a de depressed, downtrodden, scared man. His nation is failing. His people are turning away. Fear is setting in in the land. Fear is setting in in the man. And just a momentary glimpse of the might of God. And he walks out completely changed, confident, bold, assured, ready to serve God. Here I am, send me. Before, don't send me. Here I am, send me. Why? Because he understood. He got a glimpse of how mighty God was. In fact, let me show you this. The New Testament writer John, in trying to explain to people, right, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John writes one of the four Gospels of the New Testament. He hearkens back to Isaiah about what gave Isaiah the boldness to talk to his people. Here's what John said. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. This vision that changed Isaiah was of the Messiah he was going to proclaim to his people he saw Jesus. He got a Christmas preview. And so when he had to put a name on this Messiah for his people, he goes, Lord, you don't understand. I'm going to pick four words to tell you about this guy. One of them has got to be, he's really mighty. He's more mighty than you could possibly understand. Now, I think that we miss out on, on the power of Christmas because we fall short on our reverence and awe and understanding of the power and the might of God. Here's what I would ask you to think. If you could get a glimpse of it, if you could understand it for a moment, think about how differently you might live your life if you were confident, fully confident in the might and the power of God. Look what happened to Isaiah. Could you imagine what you might go for? 
the things that you might change, the challenges you might decide to accept, the moves you might make, if you understood the power of the promise behind Christmas? I mean, can you fathom how little of other people's approval you would need if you have his? Can you imagine how your anxiety might wane, how purpose in your life might come? Isaiah says to his people only three chapters later, a Messiah is coming and you need to know how mighty he is because if you do, it'll change everything. In light of understanding, it'll bring repentance and forgiveness and new life. You need to know the Messiah is going to be mighty. How do you describe it? There's not going to be a need to put your trust anywhere else. You don't need to sign agreements, packs. You don't need to look for your, your protection from anybody else. You don't need to, to live life so scared. Isaiah, when he sees this vision, he understands that it's not just the temple that's filled with the glory of God. He says that the whole earth is filled with it. And so what I want to do in the time I have left is try my best to convince you as, I, as best I can about the glory and the might of God. Because if you understand it, you would understand all over creation right now, there is a massive worship service afoot. Because we tend to be the ignorant players in all of creation about the grandeur and the glory and the majesty and the holiness and the greatness and the might of God. Most of the creation understands it. There is a mighty God right now who is being worshipped now. I mean, our time of worship this morning was good, but if we understood the might of the God that exists, if we understood that you have been invited into a chorus which is already being sung about the might of God, you might sing a little differently. You might live a little differently. When it comes to talking about the greatness of God, nobody's better than Louis Giglio at this. We've used some of Louis' stuff over the years here. I'm not going to go back to that stuff. But, but I wanted to share with you a different teaching that he gave at the John Piper Desiring God Gathering. It was a rather conservative audience that he spoke to about the might of God and how creation was filled with his glory. Because I want you to see what Isaiah saw. Hear me on this. I want you to see right now what Isaiah saw, or at least have a feeling for it. Because if you believe in the might of God, it will change you. You will live differently. You will become obedient. You will begin to trust. And so he got up and he started with, with a picture from the Hubble Deep Field. It's a pretty cool picture, right? You might go, well, that's nice. There's some color in there. But I go out every night and I look in the sky and I see a similar thing. What's so spectacular about that? Well, here's what I want you to understand. That is not a picture of a star-filled star sky at night. That is actually a picture sent back from Hubble of every one of those lights that you see is not a star, it's a galaxy. And the Hubble telescope sent back this deep field picture, and just in the picture, there were 10,000 galaxies. I want you to wrap your mind about that. The Hubble telescope sent back a picture just looking straight ahead, and in the picture it contained 10,000 galaxies. See, the psalmist, when he understood this, he said, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Now, some perspective. That Hubble photo, what you're seeing in the Hubble deep field is essentially what you would see if you took a straw and kept taping them together until you got a straw eight feet long and, and looked out the end of it. That's what you would see relative to all of creation and the sky. You'd see this much, and in that much that Hubble sent back, there were 10,000 galaxies. You want to know the power of Christmas and Christ? 
The Bible says all of this was created by Jesus. Yeah, that little baby, Jesus in the manger, he made all of that. And how did he do it? Here's what Psalm 33 says as it continues. It says, let all the earth fear the Lord, which if you understood, you would. Let all the people of the earth revere him, which if you understand, you should. It says, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded it, and it stood firm. I mean, how did he do it? How did Jesus do that? I mean, he, he spoke it into being. Perspective. I want to give you some more perspective on the power, the greatness, and the might of God. Creationists, scientists, they all agree on this one point. You know, this whole thing with Kim Jong-un, I get a little nervous about it. Nuclear war, what's that like? And I started thinking one day, I wonder what, like, the creation, you know, what the Big Bang was like relative to a nuclear explosion. So I was trying to figure out, like, you know, what's that going to be like and what would it be like? Here's one quote I got from a scientist. If you turned every star in the universe, okay, now we just saw 10,000 galaxies, but if you turned every star in the universe into a gigantic hydrogen bomb and you set them all off at once, that would barely make a noticeable pop compared to the Big Bang. Do you know who you're messing with? Oh, well, you know, I'm not sure I really want to follow God when it comes to these things. I'm just going to take it on my own. Do you have any idea how, how great he is? How about, how about this picture? This is the Sombrero Galaxy. It's all from Giglio's teaching. It's a pretty, pretty staggering picture. If you understand this, the Sombrero Galaxy is 29 million light years away from us. Perspective, a light year is the distance light travels in a year, which is fast. It travels, light travels at 186,000 miles per second. If you travel at the speed of light for one year, you would travel 5.88 trillion miles. And so if you go... 5.88 trillion miles for 29 million years, you'd get here. That, that galaxy, when I, when I was reading about this, that galaxy contains two to 300, I thought it was going to say two to 300 stars. That galaxy contains two to 300 billion stars. Anybody feel that? I mean, Isaiah started to get a glimpse, and he's like, no, no I got four words. I'm going to give one. It's going to be mighty. This is how mighty he is. This is creation telling of him, worshiping him, declaring his grandeur and his greatness. Psalm 148 says this. Praise the Lord. This is the second to last psalm. It only goes up to 150. And here, here we are at the end. You'd think they would have praised enough. But no, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights above. Well, that was Isaiah. He saw the seraphim doing that. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. We're seeing that. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let the praises... Let, let them praise the name of the Lord, for at his command, how were they made? He commanded it. They were created. He established them forever and ever. He issued a decree that they will never pass away. And then he moves down to us, praise the Lord from the earth. See, you're invited to praise him. But you won't until you understand how mighty he is. Let me show you. Verse 3 here, it said, Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. That sounds pretty. It sounds like poetic imagery. Oh, that's beautiful. But it's not just imagery. The psalmist was on to the science of what was going on in the, in the universe. 
he understood, like Isaiah understood, long before Hubble, that stars don't just shine, stars actually sing. Did you know that stars make noise? There's a star called the Vela Pulsar. They're going to pop a picture up for you. It's about a thousand light years away from us. It's a star that actually exploded into a supernova, and it began to oscillate very quickly. It oscillates on axis a star 11 times a second. And as it does, it shoots out a radio frequency into the universe. Now, you might not be aware, but, but scientists from Earth have put up microphones into space, radio telescopes to, to listen to the atmosphere. And they pointed it at this star, this Vela Pulsar. And when they did, they realized that the Vela Pulsar does more than shine. The Vela Pulsar sings. This is what it does 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, while you sit here from now on into eternity. Listen. That's pretty cool. Now, I don't know what that means or what it's saying, but the psalmist understood thousands of years ago. He says, praise him, all of you shining stars. And they seem to be up to it. Because it's a symphony. See, you're invited into a symphony. If you knew how mighty he was, you might join it. You're invited in. Uh, this is a, a star cluster called 47, 47 Tuck. It's a cluster of 16, it's about, of stars, 16,700 light years away. Beautiful, right? There is in these stars apparently 23 millisecond pulsars, and when, when the microphones were turned towards those pulsars, they were able to record 16 of them. And as we sit here right now, right now, before the throne of God, here's what they're doing. As Giglio said, it's like God has a string section, right? There. I mean, this is, we just looked at two stars. Do you understand what you've been invited into? The psalmist continues, he says, Praise the Lord from the earth. It works his way down to us. You great sea creatures and all the ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding. You mountains and hills, fruit trees and cedars, wild animals, all cattle, small creatures, flying birds, kings of the earth, all nations. You princes and all rulers on earth, young men and women, old men and children. Let, their, let them praise the name of the Lord because his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and all of the heavens. Ah, oh, he's really great. If you understood it, it could change everything. The heavens praise him. The stars praise him. You're invited I, I, I like the sea creature part here. I never caught this before. Giglio does a good job pointing this out. He says, even the great sea creatures praise him. Are you guys aware? I, never, I wasn't aware of this until this week. Are you aware of whale songs? You know, these whales are out there in the ocean singing to one another and somehow communicating through this. Check this out. It says Psalm 148. 
Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all the ocean depths. The heavens are praising him. The stars are praising him. Eventually, you're invited in. Even the great sea creatures praise him. If you understood how mighty he was, you'd sing. Maybe I know some people walk in on Sundays, they're like, well, I don't like to sing. That's okay. There's a lot of things singing to God right now. When I watched this teaching by Giglu, after he, he taught about all of creation singing, he did something that made the hair on my neck literally stand up. And uh, I can't replicate it, so if it's okay, I'm going to close with it. Um, and and uh, I just want you to get, I want you to walk out of the temple this morning with a sense of the greatness of God. So uh, in a little bit, the band will come up and we'll close. Check this out. Stars sing and whales sing and the birds fly. And I just tried to imagine what would it sound like if you could just for a second be God and hear what he hears. And I can't get us there tonight, but I, I came close. I had a friend who helped me with this little iPad program. And, and I'm not a DJ, but I, I just a little thing, just quickly. And I, I want you to see how this works. I, I brought this guy in. Um, he's um, not somebody that we had uh, going already, but um, I brought one guy in. He, he should, you should be hearing him by now. I don't know. Are we, are we on? Yeah, if we could get just a little more volume, that'd be great. Thank you very much. Just even a little more volume would be fantastic. Thank you. I'm kind of maxed out here. There we go. This guy, we didn't look at his picture. He's PSR BO329-54. And he's only rotating one and a half times per second, which is not all that much, but we need him in our little experiment we're going to do here, okay? Um, and then we had the Vela Pulsar. You remember the Vela Pulsar, right? So that's that guy. But that's a little too fast for what we're trying to do, so we're going to slow that down, okay? Now this is unedited. It's just two pulsars slowed down and put in sync with each other. It's not a real groovy crowd, I know, but I, I know where I am, but it's kind of groovy if you hear it. And some of you want to nod a little bit, but you don't know if that's allowed at a reform meeting. And so um, you just do as the spirit leads. But isn't that cool? That's just two pulsars. And so we're going to put the, uh, the millisecond guys in there. The ones you just heard, here they come. Going. 
But I was asking what you're asking because some people, some people need it really clear. Like, what are they singing? And we tried this, and you just gotta know this is unedited. We just dropped this on, and this is what happened. This is what they might be singing. for Jesus, and yet, and yet, he left it all for a dung-filled manger to travel up a hill to be crucified between some thieves so that at Christmas he might steal your heart. Do you know how mighty he is? How holy he is. Jesus made it all and he left it all on Christmas so that he might ransom you from the arrangements and the agreements that you've made with others to save you from the sin of this life and this world and to bring you back. This morning he's back on his throne and he sings over you. All of his power, all of his might, all of it for you for you and not against you. This is the promise of Christmas. This is the hope of Christmas. Live in it, my friends. Walk through this life like you've got the biggest kid in the high school hallway on your side because you do. <laughs> <laughs>